So we have a psalm here, a, a short psalm, a psalm of six verses, uh, which focuses very clearly upon David. And even though it focuses on David, it's written by David, uh, there are hints of Christ to be found in a number of expressions that are found here and in the general suffering that we see in Psalm 13. And as we work our way through the six verses, you may be reminded, as I was when I was reading it and, and studying through it, um, of aspects of Christ upon the cross, and especially where he uh, suffers the, the, the experience of being forsaken of the Father. We see that very much in the, in the first verse there. Secondly, we see something of Christ in Gethsemane, praying in great anguish, and we do see that throughout the first four verses. And then Christ himself praising his Father in the high priestly prayer of John 17, where he glorifies his Father and gives great and wonderful promises in his petitions to his people. We see that more in verses 5 and 6. And yet we will focus, with the Lord's gracious help, this evening primarily upon David and upon the testing of his faith, uh, that we would have that example uh, from, from David. And to understand something of the testing of his faith found in the context of this prayer. And so let us uh, consider together the profound comfort found in prayer, uh, the profound comfort found in prayer in Psalm 13. And there's not much for us to say about the superscription, because that has been repeated uh, already a number of times, written to the chief musician, a psalm of David. So whether he wrote it as king, or whether it was written in earlier days, but there he is as king, getting ready for his son Solomon to build the temple and to put in order all that God had revealed to him and to the prophet Nathan and to the prophet Gad. Uh, there's extra revelation that was given uh, regarding to the temple worship and what the various uh, families of the Levites were to do. And so he ordered his own, his own psalms uh, later on. It is not clear. But we'll come firstly to our first point as we examine the profound comfort found in prayer to faith tested to breaking. Faith tested to breaking. And we see in verses 1 and 2, we see... For how longs? And they are the exact same expression in English as they are in the Hebrew. Again, the same expression, repeating itself again and again. How long? How long? And again, another two how longs. And so the first how long we see in his heartfelt, or first two how, how longs, his heartfelt complaints. In verse 1, verse long, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long will thou hide thy face from me? And again, as I said in the, in the introduction, very much similar in some ways to the beginning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's not speaking of being forsaken, but it, it, it certainly calls up the same idea when he feels as if God has forgotten him. A strong feeling that he has as someone forgotten of God. And yet he is a child of God. He knows God. He loves God. But he has this constant feeling that God has forgotten him. And where do you get that constant idea from? It's from the word forever. 
it's just, and that word, that expression forever there is the idea of it's perpetual. It's continuing on and on. Why, why hast thou forgotten me for so long a time already? The Lord is, as it were, absent. And he uses the word in the second how long, how long wilt thou hide thy face from me? So he feels as though God has forgotten him and that God is hiding himself from him. So all of that precious presence of God, the comfort of God, is also experienced as being absent. God has forgotten him, he's not interested in him, it would appear. And he feels as though God has hidden himself. But surely, God, uh, surely David's theology is better than this. And so it is, it must be. We know from elsewhere he understands. He understands very deep theology. And the things that he says to God and he says about God, not just in the Psalms, but very much in the Psalms, but also in the history books where we see David uh, speaking. So he knows better, but he doesn't feel. He feels as though, and these are his his prayers that he have, and you say, well, how can he say that God forgets him when God can forget nothing? How can he say God has hidden his face from him when God's blessed and beatific face is always upon his people? Does that mean that, that he's speaking foolishly before God? No, he's speaking honestly before God. He's pouring out his cares, he's pouring out his concerns and his fears and his thoughts before the Lord. He has confidence. He's praying with confidence before the Lord. He's not saying, oh, say the wrong thing. You know, a, you know, a, a thunderbolt will come down. Or a lightning bolt. Because he knows that that is not the true God. That is the false idea that the people in the world have about God. That God is just there. He's an angry God. And he, he's just waiting to destroy. No, he's long-suffering and he's giving you time to repent. That is Jehovah. And, and so he comes before God and, 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 and as it were says, Lord, this is how I feel. And he just pours it out with that, that confidence, that boldness, that frankness before the Lord. He, he knows something of that boldness to come before the throne of grace. To obtain mercy. To obtain or to have mercy and to obtain grace in time of need. But of course, God, God has not forgotten David. Do you know one of the epithets, the positive epithet? There are two epithets that David has, and then generally linked David, a man after God's own heart. That's as high as Abraham, my friend. A glorious title that, 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 that wicked sinners can obtain by grace. And they obtain the... And, and, but what David often has, David, a man after God's own heart, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So David is a friend of God, a servant of God, a child of God, and is certainly not forgotten by God. And God's countenance is still upon his child, and yet it is not felt and it is not experienced. 
He's really feeling, not, he's not feeling it, I and mean, we shouldn't judge it by feeling. But feelings are part of who we are, part of our makeup. And in some ways, it's one of the ways that we sense things. It's not one of our five senses, but it's certainly something that we know. You wake up and you think, well, there's something wrong, or you're not in a, in a good mood, and a friend or a family member will say, what's up? And you think, well, yeah, I'm not too sure. I just woke up very bad today, and... Not sure. And then you think about it and you pray about it and you realize that no, there's something more behind this. So feelings are not, to be, are not to be the rule by which we live, but they certainly can inform us. As it were, another sense. I can't say sixth sense. That's being taken by other things, but you know what I mean. It's a, a five and a half sense. But what we do see is where David must confess before God and be very honest. Say, Lord, the omnipotent, omnipresent God, whose unconditional love is towards me by the faith he has given me, and yet I feel that I'm forgotten. I feel as though God's face is hidden from me. And he's honest with God. Are you honest in your prayer with God? You don't have to hold up a spiritual religious mask before God. So I shouldn't say this and I, and, I, and I should say this. It's be honest. Don't be rude, obviously. Don't be disrespectful. Don't lack that precious fear. But be honest, and David is honest. But what we see also is though David, though he's being tested to breaking, we see David's faith is more than alive enough to come to God. See this? So he's not having that lovely experience of God. He's not noticing God's comforting presence. In fact, he feels God to be a God afar off. And yet his faith is more than alive enough to approach this far off God in prayer. So he doesn't quite trust his feelings, although he's wrapped up in them. He's still going to the Lord. Some Christians, some professing Christians, are very much wrapped up in their emotions. And what they feel, that, that says something about their state of grace, the amount of the spirit they have. They, and, and, and those things are, to be, are, not to, are not to be confused in that way. Spiritual matters are not emotional matters. Emotional matters are of the body. They are of the endocrine system. They, they, are, they are things that are released by the brain and the organs and even by the muscles. And yes, they do affect our mood, but they do not change our spiritual state. And they are not in and of themselves indicative of the Holy Ghost. And this is the great problem that the charismatic and Pentecostal world gets itself into. Think if I feel something, it is the Spirit of God. No, it is your emotions. But they might be reacting to a move of the Spirit. But we always test that with the Scriptures. So David trusts the Lord to bring all of his complaints before the Lord. And notice then as we examine this how much he misses the Lord's presence and he desires the Lord's presence. Although he be, according to his own estimation, at a very low spiritual ebb. Very low. But he desires God. He misses God as a little child wants to be with his parent, he desires to, to have that intimacy with his heavenly father. That is a good sign. That's a good sign when we consider David, of David to look to himself. He misses it. 
He wants it. He desires it. I don't see any, any anger here. In some ways, it's despair. But what we do see is also that David's patience, his waiting upon the Lord, as it were, has worn thin. He, he's been waiting for the Lord to help him in a particular situation. And, it, and this testing of the Lord, this causing him to, to look unto the Lord in these difficulties of waiting until the Lord would give the answer, this is, he thinks it would appear, has become too much for him. And he has been waiting upon the Lord, and he thinks his time of waiting should be finished. The Lord knows better, of course. And so in, in faith he calls upon his God and his Savior. And this is, where, this is where every testing of dark and difficult providence, of the ways of God in our lives, which are not always pleasant, must bring us to, must bring us to our knees. Again, he's going on his knees, he's coming before the Lord, he doesn't feel the closeness of the Lord, his heart is not touched in warmth by anything by the Lord, and that's part of his complaint. Uh, but he comes to the Lord on his knees, he's seeking that, the help of the Lord, the sustaining of the Lord, and asking for the comfort of the Lord, indirectly. It is a look of hope. It is a look of hope. How long will thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long will thou hide thy face from me? It is a, a plaintive cry. It is a good cry. His heartfelt complaints move on to his heartbroken condition in verse 2. And we have our next two and last how longs. Verse 2 says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul? having sorrow in my heart daily. How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? So verse 2, we have our third how long. Again, that's how long is it to be? How long is David to take counsel in his soul? Which means this, how long is he to be consumed with thoughts of, of his earthly problems, of his grief and of his fears and whatever else it might be? And we could even add to this, and the spiritual distance that he's been feeling, that he's just been bemoaning. In other words, what do we have in this first half and section of verse 2, sorry? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? David is fretting. He is constantly fretting. He's fretting about these, 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 these earthly matters. He's fretting about spiritual matters. He's fretting, and it's not good for him to be so focused upon the negatives, because it has a dreadful effect upon him, as he goes on to say in that next section, having sorrow in my heart daily. It, it's, it's certainly not good for him. He sees the difficulties, he sees the, the pain, he sees the threats, the, as we will see, the death threats even. And he's focused upon them. And I would suggest part of this, this problem that he has with God feeling so distant and, 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 and having hidden himself is, is again, and this is a common theme in the scriptures, of looking at the problems and no longer looking unto Jesus. We're not to be in denial about the problems, but we are to look unto Jesus. That what does he say? Having sorrow in my heart daily. 
And, and maybe you are like that. Or you know people are like that, that they, they, they fret over a problem. And it does them no good. It doesn't solve the problem. There's no plan in there to deal with the problem. They're fretting about the problem as opposed to going unto the Lord and seeking his help with the problem. Or maybe they have done it once off, just once or twice, and, and they come back to fretting as opposed to spending more of their time on looking unto the Lord. And we can't say fretting in prayer. We can say pleading in prayer, hoping in prayer, and giving the problem to the Lord. We know from 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, casting all our cares upon him for he careth for us. Of course, casting is always that idea that, you know, if, I, if I'm to... I won't do it. I hope it doesn't slip out my hand. But as we throw something, we're throwing it. We're casting it and we're to let it go. Or else it's not cast. It's just waved. And it doesn't say wave your curse before the Lord. It's not a wave offering. Yeah, it's, it's casting them in prayer to the Lord and letting go. They're crucial. Again, that's, that's nothing novel that you've heard from this pulpit. But as Peter says, repetition is good. Now, we have no names and we have no details in this very short but sweet psalm about what's going on, what really happened. You know, we have no names, we have no places. We only know this much, that there is a problem, because the fourth how long tells us. It says, how long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? And so now we're going to start scratching our heads and think, well... Who are these enemies? Well, we could certainly think of Saul. We can think of maybe others in his life. You say, well, maybe that's it. Maybe it is. But I think the Lord has left it so anonymous that we can fill in our enemies. We can fill in our enemies and how long shall mine enemy not Absalom written in here or Doeg or Saul or any others so this, this is the crux of the actual problem here David is oppressed and his enemy is triumphing over him is exalted over him so David yes his faith tested to breaking almost, to stretching point. But it hasn't broken. It's showing how, by God's grace, the, the faith that God gave him is resilient. Because faith, secondly, turns to pleading. It turns to pleading. Verse 3, his supplication. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And that word consider, it is the, the Hebrew word uh, is also translated as behold. And so it's not just a, a looking at, but it's, a, it's as, as we've looked at it recently when we uh, were opening up First John chapter 1. And in verse 1, that, that word that's talking about behold, it's, 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 it's a gaze. It's a gazing upon something with interest and with understanding to, to learn more, to know more. Of course, the Lord doesn't need to learn and know more, but it's, it is that idea, Lord, Lord, behold me. 
Look upon me with that, with that blessed gaze, with that loving gaze, with that, with that gaze of, of, of him that cares for me. And that's what David's plea is. Although he feels forgotten, he feels that God is hidden from him, and now he's calling God to come closer, as it were, because he fears that God was not even beholding him, nor even hearing his cries, because these two are now. So look at me, I'm praying, and hear my prayer. O Lord, my God. And so we see again, there's this faith here. He confesses that Jehovah is his God. Jehovah is my God. Jehovah, behold me. Look at me and hear me. And so as he opens a supplication, you see in the remainder of verse 3 and in the whole of verse 4, we see his fears that he pours out before the Lord. And again, we have a group, a group of things, a little list. It's good to know that it's not just me that makes lists, but David himself is, as it were, in this psalm, he's making lists. We've had the four how longs, and now we have the three, or maybe I think four, just one's hidden, four lests. Lest. So the end of uh, verse 3, we have, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And we have, lest mine enemy say, I have prevailed against him. And those that trouble me rejoice. When I think that's another lest. Lest those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Have I counted too many? One, two, three. No, three lests. So what do we see firstly then? He talks about, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Oh, I've missed out an expression that we have here. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, and it's connected with this, is light in mine eyes. What does that even mean? Well, we, we think quite often think of the lightening of your eyes from being a, a dead and blind sinner to, to beholding God as Savior and your need of Jesus Christ, and that's very true. That is an enlightening work of the Holy Ghost. But as we work our way through Scripture, we see various phrases where this talks about God giving you life. And there's, there's, a, there's a good one in the Proverbs I forgot to write down. In 1 John, um, it says in... Not 1 John, sorry, in, in John chapter 1 and verse 9, it talks about Christ and it says, That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So it's the idea of giving the light of life. So just being a mass of, uh, of whatever, being given the light of life. There's a soul within you, your eyes you know, are, are alive and, and are lit with life. And that's what he's asking for, and, and that's... that's that's contrasted with the sleep of death. So lighten my eyes. Give me life, Lord, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Death by the hand of his enemy, we see then, firstly. And that would be the ultimate goal of every hater, is, 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 is to destroy. So he's fearing death, and therefore he asks for life. But he also talks about the defeat that is approaching him. He says, lest mine enemy say I've prevailed against him. So he's concerned about being conquered uh, by his enemy. So death, we see defeat. Then he goes on to say, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. And they add that word move could be applied in, it's a, it's a very, very general term. Moved as in from the living to the dead. 
Uh, moved as in having to flee. Moved as in the sense of being wounded by their words. But this is dishonor that we're looking at there. Humiliated by the rejoicing of his enemy. So death, defeat, and dishonor are the three things that he has on his heart and on his mind. And this is what he's calling out to the Lord for. And and three different things. That Lord, they're they're out to get me. They would kill me. Give me life that they want my death. Uh, Give me victory because they're after my defeat. Lord, vindicate me because they're after my dishonor. They, they are, we can say, attacking David at every level. At every level. Because God is concerned for all of those three things. God is concerned for our life and for our welfare. And therefore he says, thou shalt not kill. He doesn't want us murdered. He doesn't want us to, us to murder anyone else. He is concerned that the wicked do not get the upper hand in any way. Either to steal our stuff or to steal our wives. You can hear me uh, picking up other of the Ten Commandments at the same time. Or what about uh, the Ninth Commandment? Which we often think about is the, rem- is the speaking of untruths, but is also concerns the reputation of yourself and others. So God is concerned about the obtaining and the ma- maintaining of a good reputation. And hates how wicked people will seek to destroy your and my reputation. He hates it. He says so. A telltale is an abomination to the Lord. And so he brings these three things before the Lord because he knows that the Lord knows that they are terrible things to be attacked with. Death, defeat, dishonor. And so he lays these petitions in the Lord's hand, in the Lord's lap, before his throne. And there's much more we could consider when we, when we look into verses 3 and 4, but we'll, we'll, we'll continue moving to the last two verses. So faith tested to breaking, faith turns to pleading, and thirdly and finally, faith tempered by prayer, tempered as in strengthened, toughened by prayer. And firstly then we see as we open up verse 5 then, trusting in God's unchanging perfections. Trusting in God's unchanging perfections. But, he says in verse 5, I, see the wonderful, those, those turning points in scripture, the turning points in the Psalms or, and elsewhere, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, that walked according to the course of the world, were children of wrath as others, but God. And God, of course, makes all the difference, all the time. And here we have that one of, the, one of those, 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 those conjunctions that just turn everything around. But I have trusted in thy mercy, as he's confronted with merciless people. But I have trusted in thy mercy. And as he is in this spiritual depression, what does he say? My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Now there's a theme that we see so often in the scriptures. The exhortation, the command, and the example in this case, to rejoice in salvation. 
We've touched upon that in, in points or application of preaching a, a few times throughout uh, the year, the years. I think the, the, pr- the prayer or the psalm of Habakkuk in chapter 3 and towards the end again, you know, though, uh, though the land be devastated by, though the people be devastated by plague, though the land be devastated by famine, though nothing grows and all the animals are dead, and although everything's wrong, and yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And this is, again, faith. A gift of God. Nothing in us. But even when you consider that your faith is small and the disciples considered that a few times, what, was, what did they do? They prayed to Jesus, increase thou our faith. Because he's the source of it. He is the author and finisher of our faith. It is a gift of God, lest any man boast. And so here we see faith, living faith, a tested faith, and a praying faith, but a strengthened faith. But I I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. What we see in in, in both parts of this verse is we see that David, by faith, is looking back in wonder at God's mercies towards him in the past. Again, repeated themes that we know elsewhere in Scripture. He has trusted in God's mercy. This I don't don't want ever to to confuse you with too many Greek Greek and Hebrew words. Or even Latin words. I think some things are just important. Sola scriptura. It's important that we know those phrases. We know we've looked at agape love uh, just recently a few times. But this one word we've mentioned a few times, and it's an important Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed, it's a softer. Chesed. God's mercy. And it's a rich word because, as, as I've mentioned from the pulpit before, it means mercy, it means loving kindness, it means goodness. And it is translated in those three ways in various parts of the Scriptures. And they are all aspects of that rich Hebrew word. God's mercy is loving kindness, his goodness. And that's what he says when he considers, I have trusted in thy mercy. He has personally tasted God's mercy in his life. He, he knows something of God's sweet love even. And the goodness of God to his soul. He knows it and that's why he's missing it. That's why he prays that he may know it again. And I have, re- and I have trusted in thy mercy. He trusts in God who is a merciful God. And even though he is under a time of deep testing, the eyes of faith are remembering sweeter days of fellowship. Much sweeter days. Days of fellowship with God and more victory over sin. And then he looks on the basis of such important remembrance of past Victories of past experience with God, of past knowledge of God, of closeness of God. 
is then able to look with eyes of hope to the future, to the return of God's tender mercies. I have known them in the past, Lord. I'm missing them now and I'm pleading for them now, but I'm looking forward to their return. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. He knows that Jehovah will hear his prayers. He knows that the Lord will help him with these matters of, of despair that we've mentioned. God will deliver him. God will give him salvation. Salvation is a term that you can use for deliverance. Deliverance from this problem, from this great issue. Of course, we understand it in, 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 a, in that immediate personal salvation from sin where the Lord rebirths you by his spirit and saves you. We also know it as the, old, as the full end of redemption uh, when full salvation will be given body and soul at the return of Christ. But he is looking now with eyes that I would say are, are his eyes and his heart are warming with hope towards the Lord. He's trusting in God's unchanging perfections. God does not change. And the promises he's given to David here, the promises he gives in the Old and the New Testament, in the right context, of course, are promises that are still fully valid for us. We, we trust in him. He does not change. Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, when we know that he has these great loving kindnesses, that he's very patient towards us, that he's promised that he's coming back for us and all these other sweet truths we know that they are unchanging perfection cannot change if perfection was to change it would mean a few things firstly it was never perfect in the in the first place for imperfect to become perfect but if perfection was ever to change then it would become imperfect and this is one of the truths of God's very being he is eternally and infinite. He is unchangeable because he is perfect. Perfection doesn't need to change. And he won't change. And then finally, having seen that he's trusting in God's unchanging perfections, we see that expectation bring, brings forth joy. Because he is really looking unto Jesus now. Verse 6, I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me and notice David has not yet obtained his earnest desire of God here is no here is no and the Lord answered my prayers and he dealt with my enemies and he he raised me up from my lower state and 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 he he gave me that joy and I could see the um his hand over my enemies or whatever but he has confidence he had a great confidence looking forward to the day when sorrow will turn fully into joy. And what a joy because he says at the end of verse 5, he says, My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. But see how great a joy this is. It makes him break forth in song. I will sing unto the Lord. And that's what he's done. He wrote Psalm 13. A short psalm, but a gem of a psalm. Sort of fitted together with 149 other rich gems. 
And a song, when we consider the whole of Psalm 13, that includes the rich bounty of God towards him, even in the deep valleys of difficulty. That's part of the bounty he's talking about. Because he hath dealt bountifully with me. You know, that I was closed off. I had these doubts. I had these concerns. I didn't feel spiritually alive. I didn't feel that the Lord was with me. And yet he was. Because he brought me into those deep valleys. He brought David to the end of himself. And he, whom does he find on the bedrock of faith? At the deepest valley, he finds Christ there with him. Jehovah has indeed dealt bountifully with him. And he rewards him by the strengthening of faith. And then bringing him from, shall we say, a a spiritual coldness to a spiritual heat in verse 6. In just six verses. Maybe that's the reason we don't have all those details. Just so we can have that stark contrast. In just six verses we can see. The uncertainty, the coldness, the fear of rejection, and then within a few verses, because he prayed, warmth. Christ has given David grace, he's given him comfort, even in the darkness, to a light in his eyes, and yet he's still down there in the valley when he's speaking and singing now. And he can now hope, he can now wait upon the Lord in a far better mood with far better hope. The, the, the eyes, as it were, that were closing because of unbelief are now fully opened. Lighten mine eyes, he says. And the Lord has lightened his eyes. He's able to look unto Jesus and to sing unto Jesus because Jesus hath dealt bountifully with his soul. And the Lord will be with him. The Lord was always with him. But now he has some understanding of the presence of Christ walking at his right hand, slowly as they're walking together out of that deep valley until they reach the heights when that joy most easily comes. But we see even in the depth of the darkness, we can sing, we can be like Paul and Barnabas. And those prisons were not pleasant places. Not nice whitewashed walls, or not nice whitewashed walls. You know, think there were rats, sewer, sewage water, Stench, fear, and they sang unto the Lord. May the Lord bless this to us that we may practice this in our own lives. That when we're cold, He is not. And remember, He's drawing us sometimes to the end of ourselves because we're terribly self reliant. And that we may find Christ even in the darkest day, to the glory of Christ. Amen. Let us just pray before we finish singing our psalm. Lord, we do thank thee for thy precious word. We thank thee that thou art precious. We thank thee that thou lovest us, and even though we close our eyes and minds, or we do not wait in the time of testing that our precious faith would be strengthened and yet we see here the love of God and the power of the faith granted to the believer and Lord that faith that unites us to Christ 
O Lord, we do thank Thee for the words of comfort and exhortation in Thy Word. And Lord, may it really enter in. May it please Thee to take that seed and to plant it deep into our hearts, water it by Thy Spirit. And Lord, we know the, the toil and the work of man, that one soweth and another watereth, but it is God that giveth the increase. And we do pray that we may have spiritual fruit in days and weeks and years to come, that we may know Christ walking at our side because we walk according to his revealed will. Oh, Lord, help us. For Jesus' sake, amen.